0: Now, as we're diving into God's Word this morning, I'd encourage you, go ahead and open your Bibles to John 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you, uh, and it should be, I think, on page 958, if I looked it up correctly this week. Uh, So if you've got, using the pew Bible, it's on page 958. How many gardeners do we have in the room? Not by last name, but by hobby or, you know, kind of profession. All right, we've got a handful of you. We've tried our hand at gardening a few times, and it's gone okay. I mean, we've gotten some fruits out of it. uh, One year in particular, I remember, we started a bunch of cucumber plants because we'd never grown cucumbers before and had no idea just how many cucumbers come off of a single cucumber vine, okay? Um, Yeah, a bunch of them. In fact, actually, I figured out there is, this was not that variety, but there's a variety, I believe, called the Socrates variety of cucumbers that can produce something over like 60 cucumbers in a season off of a single vine, if tended well. Um, We didn't really tend them super well. We had, uh, I think, I don't remember, five or six vines. And all I remember is constantly them spilling out of the bed and having to trim them back and trying to get them untangled from each other other and, and all of these kind of things, I'm not really good at doing any of that. But if that's your thing, more power to you. I just, I am not there. I am not a gardener. It's hard work. It's thankless work. There's a skill to it that I just don't really possess and don't really care to try to learn, truthfully. Um, but I've noticed already, have you guys been seeing, we've had some flowers already starting to pop up. Have you guys noticed that? Spring is coming. In fact, this week, apparently, it's going to feel like it. But as we look at gardening, as we look at spring, this morning that's actually the picture that Jesus is going to use for us of the way that we live our lives and the way that we relate to God himself. So here in John chapter 15, we're going to be talking about abiding in the vine. And what we're going to figure out is God is a whole lot better at tending his vine than I am at tending my cucumbers, okay? Uh, If we ever do that again, we've got lots of ideas of how to do it better. In fact, for those of you who know me well, um, I already had looked up how to use a raspberry pie to be able to automate the watering system and stuff like that because that's just where my head goes. In fact, if you're not familiar with a raspberry pie, you're trying to figure out how do baked goods help me control the watering? It's, it's a little tiny computer. Okay, that's, that's all you need to know about it. It's not an actual raspberry pie. So you thought, okay, maybe he's a little bit better gardener than I was thinking there for a second. Just setting a pie out in the garden is not going to do you any good. All right, y'all with me? Okay, we're going to try to dive into this. We've got a lot to cover this morning. Um, excuse me. As you can tell, yes, we're still fighting the stuff, okay? Uh, as we're getting into this, though, we're going to see that God is an infinitely better gardener than I am. And so what he's going to be doing is outlining for us the key to living a fruitful life. This is, again, the last night before Jesus goes to the cross, before he dies for our sin and is raised from the dead three days later. So this is a really important night because this is the last night that Jesus is going to be physically walking around with his disciples in the same way that he has during the whole way that they've been going through their discipleship and they're following Christ's ministry. So here, as he's outlining this, we'll talk about what it means to live a fruitful life more as we go from the message. But let's acknowledge from the very beginning that Jesus' view of a fruitful life is not the American dream, okay? Whatever that looks like in your head, that's not what he means. It's not a great job, a good-looking spouse and kids, a nice house on a quiet street, or a healthy retirement account. He may give you those things along the way, but when we're talking about a fruitful life, that's not what God's talking about. He's talking about us living in such a way that we can honor him and bring glory to him, to to give the weight to him that he deserves in the world around us. That's why, by the way, Pastor Alex and those serving in Ukraine right now can bring honor and glory to him even though their finances are in turmoil, their families are scared of what's going on, everything's falling down around them. They can still bear fruit, in fact, in incredible ways as they minister there in the dark and difficult days they're facing. So as we look at bearing fruit, you've got to acknowledge it's not what we would necessarily look at. The fruit that he's looking for is the fruit of his work in our hearts that leads us to act or behave in a certain manner. If you and I are going to live lives that Jesus would call fruitful, then here's what I want you to take away from this message. We need to root our lives in Jesus, to root our lives in Jesus. Now, we've been talking about this idea over and over again through the Gospel of John, there is the idea of cultural Christianity, right? That's that I was born a Christian because I was born in America, I was born in the South, my grandma took me to church, I've went to some VBSs, and so therefore, I am a Christian. What we're gonna see this morning is that one of the key indicators of whether or not you really have a relationship with Christ, just like we saw last week, is whether or not you do what he says. How your life bears fruit for what he's called you to be and to do. So as we go through then this morning, I would encourage you to, and challenge you to be asking yourself the question of, first off, am I rightly related to Christ? Am I truly in the vine, as he'll talk about here in just a minute, or am I trying to fake it? Am I trying to do it on my own? And then if you're in the vine, the next question, and we're going to cover this a lot as we go through, is am I allowing him to prune me so that I can bear more fruit? Okay? Now, we'll try to explain that a little bit more as we go through. So start with me here in chapter 15. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Jesus says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch in it is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Remain in my love If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, as we go through this, I want to make us kind of pull out three different action steps that you and I are going to take if our lives are genuinely rooted in Jesus. Before we get to that, though, let's kind of establish a few things that Jesus is explaining here. Now, there's a little bit of question about when exactly this discussion takes place. At the end of chapter 14, it looks like Jesus and the disciples left the upper room and started heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane. So if that's the case, then they started walking past some areas. They walked past the temple and things like that. And as they did, they would have encountered, uh, if they, some people say this is what it was, probably not, could have been, there was a giant gold cluster of grapes that was in the temple that was a picture of the nation of Israel. It's possible that they passed by that on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is using that as an object lesson. It doesn't have to be that way. could be he was also pointing to vineyards as they walked. It actually also could be that the timing of things is a little off, and he may have had this discussion with them while they were in the, uh, while were in the, the upper room. Now, again, as he's going through, he's giving us this uh, this picture of the vine. It may have come from the temple. It may have come from the area in which he was walking. But the reality is it's drawing from Old Testament imagery. There's many times in the Old Testament where Israel is referred to as either the vineyard of God or the vine of God. And as he refers to it, every single time he talks about it, God uses it in the sense of judgment. So what he says is, there's a vine, I planted this vineyard, I tended the vineyard, and the vineyard refused to bear fruit for me. Instead, they turned to idols, they turned to all these things. And just like Mike was talking about in the introduction, eventually God allowed the nation of Israel to be carried off by uh, other nations to hold them captive because they refused to bear fruit the way that he said that they would. So when Jesus starts off in verse 1 and says, I am the true vine, he's contrasting himself against the the vine that was Israel, okay? In fact, here's a good picture of that. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, he's talking about that vineyard, and he, he says, The vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Israel was supposed to be God's special people, but they never lived up to what they were supposed to be and do. They never fully accomplished who they were supposed to be in honoring God the way that they should. So Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. I am the one that really fulfilled this. Because if you remember, Jesus has been absolutely perfect throughout his entire life. He has never sinned. He has always obeyed what the Father commanded him to do. And his life has been bearing fruit just like God intended the nation of Israel to, but they didn't. Okay? So Jesus is establishing himself as the true vine, as he's the one who submits to the Father, but he also gives life to the branches, which is us. We are the branches. If you're here today and you have come to Christ, you've been saved, you're in him, then the reality is you are one of the branches that God's calling to bear fruit. So then, that means he gives life to us. And if you and I are going to bear fruit that honor God, like I said earlier, we have to root our lives in him. We are branches that, as we will explain, can't do that in and of ourselves. We must remain connected to him. Now, as we do that, the first thing that you and I are going to do, if we are going to root our lives in Jesus, the first thing we must do is, number one, submit to the Father's pruning. Submit to the Father's pruning. Now, as we look through here, look at verse two. Well, go back to verse one. I'm the true vine, and the Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Now, let's pause real quick before we dive into what it looks like for us to be fruit-producing branches and what that pruning looks like. Let's talk, first of all, about the branches that don't produce fruit. If you took this passage just by itself, it might look like that that means people who had a relationship with and lost it. But that's not the truth. When we look throughout the whole testimony of Scripture, it makes it very clear that if a person has genuinely been saved, has genuinely come into a relationship with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection and been drawn to him, we saw it back in John 10, they have eternal life. That means you have life that can never be taken away ever again, okay? So that means if you're here today and you are saved, you are not going to be one of these branches that doesn't bear fruit and is removed. What he's referring to is people like Judas, Keep in mind that during the course of the discussion, we had seen one of Jesus's 12 disciples, a guy named Judas, who looked like he was a disciple, followed Jesus for a while. He got up during the supper and he went to go betray Jesus, to have him arrested and eventually to have him killed. So what Jesus is referring to is the branches that look like they're in him those that look like they're a part of the church, maybe they've gone for a long time, maybe they seemed really sincere, and maybe they did good things, but their, their life was never actually rooted in Christ. So the branches that don't bear fruit, both here and down in verse 6, are most likely those who looked like Christians but never actually were. If you have questions about that, by the way, um, we can talk more about that later. And if, if your question is, well, does that mean that my so-and-so, my friend, my spouse, my whatever, I, does that mean that they're not saved? I can't answer that question, okay? All, the only salvation I can know is my own. I, the Bible gives me clear assurance of salvation that, that I can know and you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are saved and that you have a relationship with God. But I can't genuinely know anybody's salvation outside of my own. I can tell you that looking at the fruit of their life, they have cause for concern, but I can't tell you whether or not they're actually saved. That's way above my pay grade, okay? Make sense? So as we're diving into this, if you see somebody whose life isn't bearing fruit, you have to understand that that when they're, if they're not living like they are actually connected to Jesus, they very well may not be. And that's a really difficult truth because we love people and we, we want them to be right with God, but I would tell you, if you love them that much and you're not seeing fruit in their life, not from a place of superiority, not from a place of judgmentalism, but out of a place of concern, you need to have that conversation. You need to sit down and say, listen, I love you so much. And I know that you you say that you're a Christian, but when I look at what the Bible tells us about being a Christian, your life doesn't seem to match up with that in some of these areas. And that makes me worried because the Bible says that that means you're not really in Christ. Can you help me understand like, How how do you know that you have a relationship with Jesus? And again, not from a, hey, you're going to hell if you don't, unless God calls you to be that direct. Sometimes there may be a situation where it's time. But out of love, out of compassion, out of care, it's a conversation you need to have, okay? Now, what about those of us who are in Christ? Christ. If today you're here and you know that you've been saved through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you know you're right with God, you know you're a Christian, then what is God's doing to you? What, what is he up to? Well, one of the things that God's doing is he is pruning you. He's pruning you. Now, as you look at verse 3 there, that's where he says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. In verse 3, he's referring to the fact that, yes, they had already been made clean, but how many of you have ever realized pruning is not a one-time thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Mike's got an orchard at his house, and it's a continual ongoing thing. We've got uh, Lance Moore here is an arborist, and he makes a living out of the fact that pruning is not a one-time thing. He's come and cut trees in our yard, and you know what? They grow back, and you've got to cut them again, and you've got to cut them again, and you've got to cut them again. Now, here's the thing. Pruning's not always fun, is it? See, we, we come to Christ and we get saved and we get right with God and we get excited about what he's doing, and you should. You've gone from death to life. God has made you clean. God's made you pure. You're right with God, but there's aspects of that where we still have to live out that we're not living like we should. Paul says in the letter to the Philippians, this isn't on the screen, but he tells them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work to earn their salvation, but work out to show that in greater ways. And sometimes what that requires is God to prune, to cut back stuff, things that aren't healthy. You know what's really fascinating that I don't understand about pruning things I get that you clean, you, you cut off all the dead stuff. That makes sense. You cut off branches that are diseased. You cut off branches that are dead. But you know, you also sometimes will cut off good branches. Sometimes you'll, you'll actually whittle it down so that, that the energy of the plant isn't dispersed into so many branches but actually can be more healthy and more effective and good stuff. So you actually might take off stuff that seems healthy. The writer of Hebrews kind of talks about this in Hebrews chapter 12. After all of the things that he said in chapter 12 verse one, he looks back at that and says, therefore we're surrounded by this, since we have this large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Now leave that up for just a second, Alex. If notice, he makes a, a subtle distinction here. He said that there's sin and sin is anything that displeases God or goes against his law. But he also says that there are hindrances, things that slow us down a little bit. How many of you have ever had the unfortunate experience of wearing track shorts, okay? Like legit race shorts, okay? If you've ever done that, you know, you've got your, your basketball shorts that are nice and down here, and then it seems like the, the shorter the distance, the shorter the shorts get, right? there. Now, is there anything wrong with wearing long shorts? No, but if you're in a race, you want as light as possible, as little resistance, and as much range of motion as possible, right? So what the writer of Hebrews seems to be indicating is, there are things that are out and out sinful. They are just flat out wrong. You need to get rid of that. You need to have God prune those things off of you. So if God convicts you of sin, God shows you this is not the right way to be or the right thing to do, then you get rid of those things. But there's also hindrances, They may not be bad in and of themselves, and everybody else might be able to do it without any kind of issue, but for you, a waste of time. It distracts you from what God's called you to be. It's keeping you from bearing fruit and honoring him. Those are a little bit trickier because those are the ones we really get defensive about. I mean, we know when sin is sin, and God makes it real clear and convicts us that this is wrong. I should not be doing this. I need God to prune that out of my life, and I need to stop doing that this is not so bad. I mean, yeah, I probably eat ice cream more than I ought to, but really, is that that bad? Well, considering the fact that I've got heart disease and diabetes that runs in my family, yeah, it probably is bad for me to have ice cream as much as I should. Is it sinful? Maybe not. Could it cause me to get to the point where my physical health keeps me from being able to do the things that God's called me to do? Yeah, it could. See, one of the reasons I, I try to maintain a decent level of physical shape is I want to be ready to do whatever God calls me to do. You know, we've been able to go to Zimbabwe on mission trip, camp for like six nights, and we walk around. One year when we were there, it was 105 degrees. I want to be able to be physically conditioned and in shape where I can go and do that. So if you called me tomorrow and said, hey, Sean, we're taking a trip to Zimbabwe, and God made it clear that I was supposed to go, I want to, as much as lies within me, to be ready for that. But eating ice cream doesn't help me get there. You see what I'm saying? Pruning is difficult. It's not a lot of fun. But here's the thing about it. It's an indication that you're one of God's children. How many of you have ever been in Walmart and heard that kid? Right? From like six aisles over, you hear it. And of course, those of you who've never had children say, well, if I had a child, they would never behave that way. Day one, I can promise you, I can promise you they will. It's going to happen. Now, how you respond to it may be different than that parent, but it happens, okay? At some point, every kid melts down in public. But you know what's great? When it's not your kid, right? Because they can be having a meltdown on aisle five, and all you got to do is step around them as you go past, right? It's, that's, that's their mom's deal, their dad's deal. That is not my problem. But now if it's my kid, I need to respond to them in such a way to understand that this is unacceptable behavior. That kind of selfishness, that kind of outburst will not be tolerated, and that's not how we act in our family. I need to do that because they're my kid. If when you look at your life and you think about things that you know the Bible says are wrong, if you can't list any sins that you've been convicted of recently, if you can't think of hindrances that you know you need to get rid of because they're keeping you from doing all that God's called you to do, if you can't think of anything, it may be because you're not his kid. See, Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12, he goes on after that statement we just read, says this, "'Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? "'My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly "'or lose heart when you're reproved by him, "'for the Lord disciplines the one he loves.'" And punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons, for what son is there that a father does not discipline. The pruning of God, the discipline of God, is painful and confusing and no fun at all. But He does it because He loves us. Do you understand that? And again, if there's no pruning in your life, it may be because you're not his kid just like I don't discipline my child or a child that's not mine, in the same kind of way, God doesn't discipline a child that's not his. He brings judgment eventually. But there's not the same level of discipline that there is for his sons, his daughters. By the way, when the Bible uses the word sons, it almost always means sons and daughters. The reason it uses the word sons and the reason we retain that sometimes is because sons had different legal rights than daughters did, and that instance. Uh, so sometimes we'll talk about it in terms of both being sons, whether you're a guy or a girl, because whether you're a guy or a girl, you have equal standing in the eyes of God. You, you have the same rights of son, regardless of your gender. So my question for you is, when's the last time you knew God was pruning you? When's the last time that you looked at the suffering you were enduring and said, maybe this is God trying to get my attention? Maybe he's cutting away the bad stuff, the unhealthy things, even maybe the the good stuff that's keeping me from being all he's called me to be. If I'm going to root myself in Jesus, then I have to submit to the Father's pruning. As unpleasant as it may be, he does it because he's that good. If God's convicting you, how are you handling it? Are you surrendering that area of life to his control and working in the strength to do what he says, or are you just trying to numb that feeling of conviction, just trying to kind of push it aside and ignore it? Rooting in Jesus means we have to surrender to his pruning. Now, it also means, number two, that we must abide in him abide in Jesus. There's this word remain that's used multiple times throughout the passage here. Look in verse 4. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. Now, as we look at this word remain, it's the idea of remain or other translations use the word abide. I use the word abide here because it's different. We use the word remain a lot. Abide kind of has a different sense to to me. It's the idea of living with, right? You remember last week we talked about the fact that God comes to dwell with us? Remember we said that in John 14? So the idea of remaining or the idea of abiding is living with Jesus. That means we're planting our life fully in his control. It's not a word that we use very often, but we have to root every aspect of our lives in him because we can't bear any f- lasting fruit without it. If you cut a branch that's not corrected to a trunk, especially a, of an olive branch, even if your intent is to prune it, you're destroying that branch, right? You, you can't, if, as far as I'm aware, with olives, you can't take a cutting and start a new vine. I, I don't know that for sure, but I, I don't believe that you can. I know other plants you can, but not with a, an olive vine. So, or excuse me, grapevine, excuse me. In this kind of instance, then, if, if you're being cut out, If you're not connected to the trunk, then that means the branch itself doesn't have the power to heal, grow, or change in and of itself. It has to stay connected. See, if you and I are a part of this cluster of grapes, a part of this vine, then we have to stay connected to him. You and I do not have that life inside ourselves. We don't. This isn't saying you can lose your salvation, like I said earlier. It points to the fact that genuine believers will remain plugged into the life-giving flow of Christ. Although not perfectly and not with complete consistency, a true believer will throughout the course of their life stay plugged in and growing in Christ. I mentioned this again last week, but, but, but think about it. What looks different in your life today than a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago Not just, yeah, well, your gas was cheaper then or or whatever. But what looks different about the way you respond to the frustrations of life? What looks different about your hope? What looks different about the way you treat people around you? What looks different about your life? If there's nothing different, guys, then you've got to check and see if you've ever been connected to the vine. Because see, We've lived in our house for 11 years, 12 years actually. The trees around our house look different than they did. The hedges in front of the house, because I'm bad about cutting them back too late, have gotten like twice the size they were when we moved in. So now they're encroaching on the bottom of the picture window. So now the the bottom three or four inches of the picture window is is all hedge because over time, things that stay connected continue to grow. So are you growing in Christ? is there something different about you? If not, again, are you even connected to the vine? By the way, there is a beautiful spiritual union with Christ that we enjoy. I know sometimes in Baptist circles, we don't talk a whole lot about some of the, the, more, the more spiritual elements. I hesitate to use the term because it's got so, many, so much baggage to it, but the more mystical things. But the reality is we're talking about being connected to the Spirit of God. We're talking about things that are are not physical, not material. There's something to that that's beyond that. However, Jesus does at least give us a few indications that help us to see if we're actually remaining in him that we can draw from this, all right? Um, There's a few clear tests for us. Look down at verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. So from this verse... We can see that remaining in Christ means that as I remain in him, his word remains in me. So am I growing in an understanding of God's word? Am I learning from what he's taught? Am I studying it? Am I getting to know it better? Listen, um, I have spent, let's see, I got a four-year degree from Liberty in biblical studies and then I got a three-year master's in MDiv uh, in, in and spent a lot of time in a lot of Bible classes. I've been a Christian now for almost 30 years. And as I've been following Jesus, I still find stuff when I'm reading in the mornings that I've never understood the same way, okay? So after six, seven years worth of post-high school education, almost exclusively in the Bible, And 10 or 11 years of being a pastor and 30 years of walking with Jesus, there's still more for me to grow. There's still more for me to understand. There's still more for me to figure out, which makes God so incredibly amazing. By the way, you you sit down with some of these seminary professors who've been teaching for 40, 50, 60 years. I mean, it's incredible to see their incredible love for God's word as much time as they've put into it. It's still fruitful. It's still incredible for them. If you and I are going to remain in Christ, then we have to remain in his word, okay? Not only that, next thing that we see quickly is jump down to verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Remain in my love. So when you look at your life, is your life characterized by a love that comes from God and a love for God, yourself, and for others that looks like the love that he shows to you? See, if we're remaining in him, we're remaining in his word, remaining in his love, and then jump down to verse 11. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So are you remaining in his joy? Are you staying in his word? Are you staying in his love? And is your life characterized by the joy that only he can give? See, that's what it looks like to remain in him. Again, there are beautiful things happening spiritually. There's peace and comfort and things that, that, that go beyond this. But just these three, is your life marked by an experience of his word? Is your life marked by an experience of knowing the love that he has for you, an identity that comes out of his love for you? Is it filled with joy? And now the next question is, would your spouse or your roommates or your classmates or your coworkers agree with what you just said? if we're really remaining in him, it's going to change every relationship around us. Because see, the last thing that we're going to do is if we're going to surrender to his pruning, we're going to abide in, his, in the son. The third thing that we're going to do is bear fruit. To bear fruit. Now, immediately, if you've been in church for a while, fruitfulness we often think of in terms of leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't save anybody, but God allows us the privilege of being able to share the gospel with them and seeing them make that decision to, re- to receive Christ, and, and we get to be a part of that. We don't do that ourselves, but we get a, to be a part of it. Some people look at that as, as like the penultimate fruit that we, we can bear for Jesus. That's, that's like the Cadillac, right? And yes, that is part of being fruitful. However, I know time is short on us, so let's just kind of jump in. Uh, if you really were to define fruit, one of my favorite definitions is what Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 5. In verses 22 and 23, having talked about what life looked like before you follow Christ and what it looks like to live a life apart from Christ, he says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, which by the way, didn't we just see that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. So what he's saying is, as you're being pruned, as you're remaining in him, then your life ought to be characterized by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, by kindness, by gentleness, by faithfulness, and self-control. Now, as you look at that, there are other, obviously, things, there are other places in Scripture that talk about things we should do, like seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed, and doing the right thing all the time. Well, you and I are called to bear those kind of fruits, but remember you're not called to do this on your own. Jesus said it's remaining in the vine that causes you to be able to bear fruit, right? You can't bear fruit on your own. Keep in mind the order. Ephesians chapter eight through 10, say it this way. For by, you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. All right, pause right there for a second, Alex. You don't save yourself. It is a gift, that God gives freely. Understand that? However, verse 10 says, go ahead, Alex, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So if you are connected to the vine, the expectation is that you will bear fruit. You will do good works. But don't be like the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees had it all wrong. The Pharisees were the religious leaders that Jesus has been fighting with all throughout his ministry he recorded in the Gospel of John. They're the guys who said, we're gonna try to do all of the fruit without being actually connected to the vine. So here's my challenge for you this morning. How are you going through your life? First off, do you define a fruitful life the same way that God does? Some of you, as you're getting older, you're thinking about leaving a legacy for your kids or your grandkids. Let me ask you, how many of you can name all four of your, or let's say at least four of your grandparents? How many of you can, can name four the the names of your four grandparents? Okay, about most of the room. How many of you could name four of your great grandparents? Okay, got a handful. Could any of you name all what eight of them? I guess be eight great grandparents. All right, so let's see. There's me my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, within four generations, were already forgotten. Catch that? Now, as you and I look at abiding in the vine, the goal and the outcome of our life is not that our kids would remember us or even that our great-grandkids would remember us. The goal of our life is that we would bear fruit. You know why? Because that results in the glorifying of the God who loved us so much to die in our place. See, that's the whole point. Look at verse 8. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. If you and I live for Jesus, allowing him to prune us, staying in his word, staying with him and staying close to him, and then uh, allowing him to be able to let us live and bear out fruit in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and all of the other things that scripture calls us to do, then what that does is that proves to the world how good God is. They look at our lives and they give him honor and glory. We give him lives or glory and honor with our lives. And as we do all of those things, whether the world forgets us or not, we'll be able to stand before him and say, God, in the strength you supplied, I sought to bear fruit for your name. That's a life well lived. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes this morning. I know today has been a little bit disjointed and I apologize for that. But I hope through this that you've heard clearly God's word. The first question is, are you connected to the vine in general? Period. Again, you can't lose your salvation. But there is a possibility that you thought you were saved and never truly were. So have you surrendered to Christ? Have you submitted your life to him? Then my next question then is, if that's true. By the way, if you haven't, you can do that right now. You can surrender to him right where you're at and say, God, I want to, I want to be saved. I, I want to be right with you. I need you to forgive me and I want you to be in charge of my life. I want to bear fruit for you. But if you're here this morning or if you're watching us online and, and you know that you've surrendered to Christ, have you been fighting against his attempts to prune? Discipline's not fun, guys. It's never, never a fun time. But do you need to lean in and say, God, you're right. I've been holding on to this thing, and you've said that it's sin. I want to walk away from it. Or I've been holding on to this, and maybe it's not overtly sin, but it sure isn't helping. So, God, would you give me the strength? Prune that out of my life. Give me the strength to do whatever I need to do to change. Are you resting in his word? Are you coming to know it better? Is his word remaining in you, not just on Sunday mornings, but when you walk out these doors and you go to the restaurant or you go to work or you go to the doctor or you go to your apartment, you go to class? Are you abiding in him? Is his love going with you everywhere? Are you showing that to everybody around you? Are you living a life that's characterized by joy? And are you bearing fruit for him? Would you ask then that God would prune you so you could bear more fruit? So you could glorify him and honor him in every way possible? Take just a moment there with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Do business with God. If you need to talk, I'll be down front. If not, I'll just close this in prayer in just a minute. Father, we thank you that as Jesus taught us this, he also modeled it for us. He constantly obeyed you. He constantly stayed connected to you even when that took him to the cross to die in our place. Father, it's so easy for us to get confused and distracted. So prune us, whatever you need to cut, whatever you need to take away. Would you give us the strength to walk in the way you've called us to? Would you give us the strength to bear fruit for your name and for your glory? Would you do that in our lives as individuals, in our marriages, in our families, through this church, into this community? Yes, we want to bear the fruit that we would see people come to know you, but we also want to bear the fruit that represents you well everywhere we go and everything we do in our own heart attitudes. We want to honor you and glorify you. So, God, would you give us the ability to bear fruit for you? We submit to your pruning. We seek to abide, and we want to bear fruit for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.